Ruth, chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The story of Ruth, it occurs during the time when the judges rule. That's the book of Judges, right after the book of Joshua in the beginning of the Bible. You get Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and then Judges. We don't know exactly when Ruth's story occurred within the book of Judges, but it perhaps was in the time of Gideon. In Judges chapter 6, verse 1, it says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian several years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come in with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. In the book of Judges, you see the cycle of Israel disobeying God. God's like, all right, do what you want to do. See how that works out for you. It explodes. Israel now becomes enslaved or oppressed. They cry out to God, and God raises up a deliverer. And in this book, that deliverer is referred to as a judge. So in the time of Gideon, Israel was in a very low place. They were really, really hurting. And that could have been when the story of Ruth happened, but we don't know. But it's just interesting when you look at the situation prior to God raising up Gideon, it appears to be consistent. And in this time of Gideon, when you look at the circumstances, you could see that they were just so destitute. They had no food. They had nothing but enemies all around them that they would be willing to go to another country just to kind of escape and have some peace in search of a better life. In Leviticus chapter 26, among other places, God warns the Israelites that if they turn away from him, certain things will happen. And we got to realize something about the Israelites. The Israelites were created from Abraham, his son Isaac, and his son Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. And from the descendants of those 12 sons, we have the nation of Israel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. So you have the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel exists because God wants to glorify his name and show the people of the world that there is a God in heaven. These are my people and I'm going to protect them. And God has protected them despite some of the most heinous persecution of any people group among the inhabitants of planet earth. God still sustains them. And in Leviticus chapter 26, he's like, look guys, I will take care of you. I am your God. You follow me and I will bless you. I will give you all these good things. And he did. And he also said in Leviticus 26:37 regarding Israel, when they disobey and rebel against him, they shall stumble over one another as if to escape a sword, though none pursues. And you shall have no power to stand before your enemies, and you shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And that's pretty much what happened around the time of Gideon. Things were chaotic. The hearts of the Israelites were in rebellion against God. It was heartbreaking, frustrating. And this is the way it was through much of the Old Testament history, because the Israelites continually disobeyed God. But they are his people. They're his flagship for humanity, if you will. He created them to be a people that would glorify him, but they don't want to glorify him. So what happens? They go into rebellion and then bad things happen. And there were times of peace, because God would deliver them and show himself real again, but those times were only to be followed with more rebellion and drama. 
So this is the backdrop of the story of Ruth during these times. It says there was a famine in the land, and famines in Scripture often arise as judgments from God in response to rebellion. But there are different types of famines also in the Scriptures, other than the famines of like food and water and and the basic necessities. For example, Amos chapter 8, verse 11, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread or thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And that happened at the close of the Old Testament. It would be 400 years before God's voice would echo through the land again. And that 400 years is called the 400 years of silence. And that occurred at the closing of the Old Testament, and it ended at the revelation of Jesus, the Messiah. So the famine of hearing the words of God, that's one famine. Another kind of famine, in Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, it says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. So there's a famine of God's word being taught. They don't teach the word because they don't believe the word like many churches today. They don't teach the scriptures because they don't believe the scriptures. And as a result, you see people being destroyed in their relationship with God because they just don't know. So famines, there's more than just one type of famine. It says there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. In Bethlehem, there's actually two towns called Bethlehem. Bethlehem Ephrathah or Bethlehem in Judah, that's one town. There's another Bethlehem. The writer confirms that Bethlehem Ephrathah in Judah, that's the Bethlehem they're speaking of. And we would see in Micah chapter 5 verse 2, Micah is another minor prophet, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth to me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So a ruler is going to arise out of Judah that is going to be eternal, pre-existing before he was born, and that, of course, is Jesus. And this is the verse in the Old Testament that predicts that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. But notice the supernatural nature of the coming ruler, again, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. He's alive before he is born. Verse 2, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. So they were from Bethlehem Ephrathah, so they call them Ephrathites. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now that's Gentile country. That's not Jewish country. But again, the the land of the Jews, Israel, was under siege constantly. Verse 3, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Verse 4, these took Moabite wives The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth, and they lived there about 10 years. So there's a problem when an Israelite takes a Gentile spouse because the law condemns it. There's another famine of the knowledge of God. Either they didn't know it or they were an outright rebellion. In Deuteronomy 7, 1, it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mighty than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they will turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. There was a big problem when an Israelite married a Gentile woman, or vice versa, a Gentile man married an Israelite woman. 
because of their tendencies to draw them away from the God of Israel and draw them into their own culture, their own way of thinking, their own gods, which weren't gods. The scriptures say they were demons who were worshipped. And God warned them of that, and it happened just like God said. Their hearts were turned away. And we see that all over the Old Testament. Verse 5, And both Malan and Chilion died, so the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, this doesn't say that God killed them or struck them down. It doesn't say that they died because they married Moabite wives. They simply died. That's all the information we have. But it's interesting that the name Malan means sick, and the name of Chilon has the idea of wasting away. So it appears that their names implied some physical frailty or sickness. So they could have been just sickly men and died early of health issues. Now, Naomi at this time was likely feeling the weight of guilt for leaving Israel and allowing her sons to marry Gentile brides. It's not directly stated, but you think about it. She probably knew enough about the scriptures to know that, hey, don't rebel against God. Otherwise, if you do, God's going to punish you. So she probably felt punished. Her husband's dead. Her two sons are dead. She has no other children. And thinking back on 10 years prior, the famine came, and instead of riding it out and trusting in God, they left. Now her current situation would likely to her cause her to believe that God was angry with her. And in the midst of the storms of life, the enemy will certainly impress that upon a person who feels guilty about what they're doing. That's what the enemy does best. He makes us feel guilty. He deceives us. And if we're in the wrong, then we should feel guilty and we should repent. And that apparently is what Naomi is in the process of doing because she's going to go back home. But how often do we forget how loving and good God really is? And I think a lot of people don't know how loving and good God is because they don't trust him. And when you trust him, you put your faith in him and you just push through life going, I'm going to trust you, Lord. This is insane, but I'm going to trust you. And he delivers you through it. You begin to realize God is good. He's really good. He's merciful. And sometimes that love, it's not realized until we are completely broken and about to give up like Naomi was. But then God's love begins to do its work in our hearts. Verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she gets word that the famine is over. When she goes back home, she has nothing. And when she arrives, the only way she can get her land back is to have it redeemed, and she cannot do that herself. And the book of Ruth is about redemption, and we get into some of the laws of redemption. It's very fascinating because it all points towards Jesus. The book of Ruth is a Cinderella story that is all about the redemption of mankind by the kinsman redeemer, Jesus himself. So Naomi wants to go home. She has no right to the land. She has no husband. Therefore, she is going back home with nothing. Verse 7, so she set out from that place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way and returned to the land of Judah. So the daughters-in-law are both going to go back home with her. Why? We don't know. But Naomi obviously had a significant influence in their lives, or their lives in Moab was just lousy. But they're all widows. There's three widows. So maybe hanging out with each other gave them comfort. That family love in the midst of a difficult situation can often be the only thing that holds people together. So maybe they did that, but we don't know. Verse 8, But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go and return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. So the daughters-in-law, they apparently were kind to her, and she evidently wanted the best for them, or she just didn't want them hanging around any longer, or perhaps she was thinking the trip home is too dangerous and she cares about them. So we don't know, but she just basically says, Look, I'm out. You guys go back home and it'll be well with you. 
verse 9, the Lord grant that you may find rest each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. So she gives them a blessing that they might find rest in the house of a husband. Or in other words, maybe you'll find another husband and you can have a good life. The chances of you finding a husband and having a good life are probably better here than if you go with me. Because back in Israel, they would be foreign women. And, and Naomi understands that a foreign woman in Israel, especially after they were oppressed by other foreigners, would probably not be welcome, nor would any family accept to receive them. Verse 10, And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. So both of them said they wanted to go with her and become part of their people. Verse 11, But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? There's really no hope for you accompanying me. Verse 12, Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, verse 13, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So Naomi may have truly loved her two daughters-in-law. It looks like she did, but she says the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She obviously felt guilty because of their situation. Verse 14, and they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So Orpah gets it. She's like, okay, I'm out. And she turns away and she returns to her people. Ruth, on the other hand, she clings to Naomi and refuses to leave. And Orpah may have come from a good family. She may have seen a better hope returning, but Ruth is not having any part of it. Whatever the circumstances, Ruth is going to go with Naomi, not realizing that the hand of God is at work here. And despite Naomi feeling like God has cursed her, which under the circumstances would seem reasonable, but God is going to do something great in her life. And it starts with her desire to come home. Verse 15, and she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. So now she's trying to get rid of Ruth. Ruth, go home. Verse 16, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Verse 17, where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more, if anything but death parts me from you. So here she acknowledges the Lord, which is interesting. This is a Gentile from the land of Moab. But the Moabites along with the people of Ammon, the Ammonites, the people of Amalek, the Amalekites, all these people, they all knew about the God of Israel. That's pretty clear throughout the scriptures, especially in the book of Joshua, because the God of Israel is the one who brought the Israelites to the land and defeated all of the armies that were a lot stronger than the Israelites. So they knew about the God of Israel. And here Ruth says, your God will be my God. May the Lord do so to me and more, if anything but death parts me from you. So yeah, Ruth wants to follow Naomi to the death. When we study the scriptures, we see things that point forward to something bigger in the future in addition to the current context. So there's something bigger here than just the book of Ruth. It's pointing towards something that's going to unfold in history. And these things are called types. So for example, the tabernacle. Tabernacle is a picture of Jesus. You have the menorah, the light. Jesus was the light of the world. You have the table of showbread. Jesus was the bread that came down from heaven. You have the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God with the mercy seat as the lid. And Jesus was the presence of God and his mercy. And when we see these things, 
They point towards that fulfillment in the New Testament. And in the story of Ruth, we see Naomi as a type of Israel and Ruth as a type of the church. Naomi has the God-given heritage, while Ruth has no standing at all in the promises of God. Naomi's life brings about the opportunity for a relative named Boaz, who is a type of Jesus, to embrace Ruth and ultimately make Ruth his bride and redeem them, which the theme of the book is redemption. And Ruth has no real right to be included in the family of God, but she is redeemed and she is taken into the family of God by Boaz, who embraces her and ultimately makes Ruth his bride. And that's what Jesus has done with the Gentiles. Ruth was a Gentile. We are Gentiles. Israel has given us the heritage of Jesus. God provided the foundation of the scriptures in Israel, the law, the prophets, the character of God is is displayed, the judgments of God. We see many things in the Old Testament that really complement the New Testament. So Israel gave birth to Jesus, and Jesus embraced both Israel, they rejected him for the most part, but he also embraced the Gentiles like Ruth. The churches, in my opinion, all those children of God who have been born into the family of God by faith in Jesus, receiving the Holy Spirit and are now sealed with the Holy Spirit, or in other words, have God's stamp of ownership on them. This is the church. And the church is referred to as the bride in Revelation 19. And the bride will partake of a great celebration one day in heaven called the marriage supper of the Lamb, where Jesus receives his bride. So it's a picture of marriage. So if you want to know why Christians support traditional marriage, it's because it is a picture of Jesus and his bride. And it's pure, it's spotless, it's holy. So the book of Ruth is all about redemption or purchasing something back that once belonged to you that you cannot yourself purchase, but somebody else can. Verse 18. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Now, Bethlehem at this time was not a big town. We may think it more of a village. And people knew everybody. Small town, everybody knows everybody. Their families grew up together. They all know Naomi. And it's only been 10 years since she's been gone. So, you know, they they get it. This is Naomi. Verse 20. So she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Now, the name Naomi, it means pleasant. But Naomi doesn't feel pleasant. She feels bitter, and the word for bitter is Mara, and God has dealt bitterly with her, leaving her bitter. And she again attributes her misery to the hand of God that has been against her in her own opinion. Verse 21, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity on me? Yeah, so she's blaming God. Funny thing is, oftentimes I've looked at a situation where I'm doing well, and then a season occurs that I feel like everything's falling apart. And it's like, God, what are you doing? Why are you against me? Not realizing the hand of God was maneuvering me out of my comfort zone and into a place of humility where I had to acknowledge to myself, you know what? I'm not as good as I think, and I really need God. And when I became broken and felt like quitting, thinking God was not in it, but he was, and he brought me through. He's done that several times. And some of these seasons, I don't have an answer as to why this happened. You know, some of them I do, it's like, oh man, if that wouldn't have happened, then this wouldn't have happened. I can see the plan of God unfolding here. But there's times when I'm like, I don't have the answer. Why did you do this? And God is silent. But I do know that God's faithful and he will not give me what I cannot handle. And when he does take me through a tough time, he's going to lead me out in his timing. He's going to teach me some things too. So when I go through a very difficult time, as Job says in Job 19.25, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. 
I always have the hope that my Redeemer lives and He's redeemed me. Sometimes God needs to humble me, and I wish I could just be humble, but sometimes I feel myself foolishly thinking that I'm better than I am. And that's when God gently says to me, hey, Todd, let's go back to the woodshed again. We need to talk. I really hate those woodshed experiences, but I know I need them to deflate my fat head. And when I'm finally walking in humility, God lifts me up and he shows me how good he is. And that makes me even more irritated with myself. God is so good. He picks me up. He sets me back on that place when I humble myself. And then he restores or he teaches me what he's going to teach me or whatever. He ministers to me. He never leaves me or forsakes me. And being humbled can be painful. It can be humiliating. But I recall what James said in James 4.10, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. So whoever exalts themselves, they're going to be humbled. But whoever humbles himself, God will exalt. And Naomi was humbled through her experiences. I don't believe this means she was proud and arrogant. Rather, I think it was the hand of God preparing her for something greater. And that greatness, despite seeming impossible, was actually part of God's plan. Verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, this is about springtime. So imagine Naomi's memories of a famine-ridden land where the vegetation would be shriveled up and dead. People are miserable. The land is dry and barren. That's what she left. That was her last memory. And now she returns again and finds the land green again, vegetation growing, and the fields are healthy. She returned to the promised land. There's a picture in my head when I think about Naomi's return, and it's summarized in Acts 3.19. It says, Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. That verse was huge in my life. Repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Now, again, we don't know that Naomi was in sin. I don't think that's the context here, but this is the verse that pops into my head in my own life when I want refreshing, when I want to be standing in the midst of that place of promise. I got to go back, examine my life, and say, okay, Lord, here I am. Take care of this mess. And then what happens as God begins to deal with my issues and I trust him, I become refreshed. And Naomi, at this point, had to feel at least some refreshment. When we want to return to the place where God wants us, where we belong, and stop chasing our own plans, there's a refreshing of our spirit that occurs. And we also see this in the story of the prodigal son who squandered all of his inheritance on wickedness. And when he finally comes to himself and understands he needs to come home, even as a lowly servant instead of an exalted son, because he now has nothing. But the surprising response must have simply shocked him. In Luke fifteen twenty, it says, And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Which was true, but the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they begin to celebrate. That's the heart of God. Bring people back to where they belong, and they're no longer chasing their own desires, their own dreams, their own passions. They're simply resting in God, and he brings about refreshment, and there's celebration there. So in coming home, she finds herself in the midst of old friends and family members, and despite her despair, at least she knows she is home where she belongs. Thank you.